Well, let's jump in. We are currently uh, beginning a new series last, uh, let's see, last week on Journey. There we go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Every time I like, go through like uh, rehearsing or practice, you know, I do that sermon series summary uh, when I rehearse it, that song's in my head every single time. So welcome to my mind, my, my brain. Anyways, uh, but it's a journey. It's a journey. You see this map right here. And uh, Jesus uh, actually in uh, Matthew 16 uh, last week, if you missed last week uh, because of the snow, we had a smaller attendance. Uh, they actually are, him and the disciples are in uh, Caesarea Philippi up in the north, and then they, they begin to make their way down south, and that blue line shows their, vo- their, their journey to Jerusalem because they're making their way to the arrest and crucifixion of Jesus. He predicts it. In Matthew 16, it says, from this time on. So you can kind of break down the book of Matthew. Matthew's a, just kind of like a map for us when it comes to this series, because we're going to sort of travel with Jesus as he makes his way to Jerusalem, as we make our way to Good Friday and Easter. And him and the disciples are beginning up to that point, and then they, as Matthew says in, in uh, uh, chapter 16, from that time on, and they head south. And 16 is where Jesus, uh, if you missed last week, again, listen to online and he talks about a few things with the disciples in terms of, of the importance of his crucifixion. And, and it came to a big surprise to them. And along the way, as he makes his way down uh, this morning, uh, we're going to be in chapter 18, and they're in Capernaum. Uh, that's where they are. And then eventually makes his way down. And by the way, he sends out 70 people uh, to go out and share the gospel ahead of time. And the Samaritans uh, say, no, you cannot come into our province. As a result, Jesus and disciples have to go all the way around into the Jordan Valley, which is a longer trip. Obviously, going through Samaria down to Jerusalem is a lot faster, but the Samaritans say, you can't come through here at all. So they go around there and through the Jordan Valley. And by the way, as they're coming down the Jordan Valley to the left uh, would be the wilderness or the desert where Jesus faced the temptations of Satan. Imagine what's in Jesus' mind as he's making his way to Jerusalem and he sees the desert, the wilderness of those temptations. And also along the way, he goes to Zacchaeus' house. He uh, heals two blind beggars. And also uh, he raises Lazarus from, the, from dead. And then he, lastly, he spends uh, time with Mary and Martha at their house and they anoint him. That's his final uh, visit, and then he goes into Jerusalem and the triumphal entry. So some of these stories that we've heard, sermons on these, um, kind of tie together in this journey, which I really love. So let's jump in this morning. Matthew 18. Matthew 18, 1 through 4. And you can follow along with your, the sermon slides, the teaching notes as well, or if you have a, an app or a Bible, I'm going to be reading from the New Living Translation. In Matthew 18, because uh, one of the things that we see as well is where Jesus, not only on this journey are they meeting people and, and coming to certain towns, but also he teaches the disciples a number of lessons, a number of parables. And we're going to see that in the text this morning. Matthew 18, verse 1. About that time when the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. In the literal translation, I want you to write this word in there. It's actually, who is then the greatest? 
And the NLT doesn't have that. It, it's then. Who is then the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus called a little child to him and put the child among them. Then he said, I tell you the truth, unless you, you turn from your sins and become like little children, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. It's very interesting. The disciples, are, they already assumed they were in. They were asking about rank. And, and we see Jesus actually saying, uh, don't be so fast on that. He says, anybody who wants to get into the kingdom of heaven, you need to be like little children. Verse 4, so anyone who, anyone who becomes as humble as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Let me pray for us this morning. Father God, thank you so much for uh, this time. And God, my heart goes out to um, the people in New Zealand right now. Uh, Fifty people dead after a shooting in a mosque. And just the grief and loss, uh, stories that we have read. Also stories of courage, people who had just stepped in and actually saved more lives. Uh, but God, we, we grieve with them. And Lord, I turn towards this sermon and I pray that you would focus my mind. This morning has been full of distractions and my mind's been just kind of hurried. I pray that you'd kind of slow me down and that my words would be your words, your words would be my words. And God, help me be focused and allow this sermon to um, really be expressed. Thank you for this story, this text, and thank you that we can journey with Jesus as he makes his way finally to Jerusalem. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said? Amen. All right, so I just want to make some introductory comments. If you have your uh, teaching notes, I just want to mention a few things. First of all, then is a very important word because when when uh, the disciples asked a question, who is then the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, then sort of uh, uh, denotes that they have talked about this before. This is a, a question or a topic that has come up before, then signifies that. And also, um, it's interesting, the disciples are asking this question, and, and, and one scholar speculates that Perhaps the disciples are asking this question because Peter, James, and John are rising in rank within this discipleship group. Um, they're becoming very prominent. A chapter before, they're right there for the miracle of the transfiguration, where Jesus is all light, and it's a miracle, and, and Elijah's there, and, 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 and uh, uh, Moses is there. It's just a mir- an incredible miracle. If you haven't read it, it's in chapter 17. And J- Peter, James, and John are there, and no doubt the other disciples learned of this. They're probably a little bit concerned. Like, what's our rank? Uh, who, who is then the greatest in the kingdom? So they're really looking out for themselves. Also, what we see here, too, is the fact that Jesus often taught in parables and these stories, and he would, uh, he would talk about things that were common in their day, like a lost coin, a lost sheep, a mustard seed, um, but probably didn't have that with him. But obviously his audience, the disciples, would know what he's talking about because they saw sheep. They, you know, they, they probably lost a coin. But this is one where he actually has a visual aid. He brings a child right in the midst of them. So this is kind of a parable with a visual aid. And it's very interesting that he does this for a number of reasons. Because children, as a symbol of faith and greatness, would be the last thing you would do in antiquity, in the first century. And I think from our American uh, viewpoint, in terms of our high value for children, which is great, back then it wasn't 
it wasn't so. In fact, if you were there among the disciples and Jesus brings a little child among you and he says, uh, you need to be like this little child to be great in the kingdom of heaven, you would say, you've got to be kidding me. Are you serious? Because it's so staggering. It's so radical. I don't think we can even, even come close uh, how, how just staggering an example is. Because children back then were not valued. They were not esteemed. Often they were treated poorly. And there's a number of stories of, of children of being abused. They were looked down upon because obviously they're inferior. Uh, they didn't have physical strength. They didn't have maturity. They didn't have intellect, things like that. And also, I came across this just uh, two days ago, that the mortality rate in that day and age from birth to seven years old was 50%. So parents, one scholar speculates, probably didn't invest much because there was a 50-50 chance that their child will not make it past the age of seven. It's remarkable. And children were looked down upon. So for Jesus to actually use them as an example uh, when, when um, parents didn't really value them. There was no helicopter parents in antiquity. Um, there were no parents back then spending thousands of dollars of money or maybe millions to pay off admission counselors to get into the college of your choice, okay? They wouldn't have done that back then. And we not only see it in Matthew 18, but also we see it in Matthew 19, 14. Many, several times Jesus points to children. It's just really remarkable to me. 19, 14 says, but Jesus said, let the children come to me. So this is, this is a chapter later after Jesus teaches this lesson to them about the importance of children and such and, and as a symbol of faith. And yet uh, in chapter 19, uh, the disciples are, are trying to shoo the children away. Uh, this, it's like the disciples just don't get it. Let the children come to me, don't stop them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to those who are like these children. He's reiterating again what's mentioned in chapter, in chapter uh, 18. And then also the Sermon on the Mount, going back to Matthew 5, 9. God blesses those who work for peace, or blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons and daughters of God. So this idea of children is a very important theme in terms of the teachings of Jesus. But the question I want to ask is if children were so inferior and they were looked down upon and were not really valued as much, um, then why does he point to them repeatedly as the symbol of faith and greatness? And there's several reasons why. I just want to provide three this morning. Number one, children are fully present. Little children are fully present. Um, they're not so much worried about yesterday or last week, and for us as parents, perhaps we wish they would uh, think about what happened last week, but they don't have shame and guilt. They don't have the cognitive ability about that. They can barely remember what happened, you know, uh, a few hours ago. I'm talking about little children now. Uh, they don't have shame and guilt about the past, and also they're not anxious. They're not worried about tomorrow or next week or the next month. They're fully present. A couple of pictures right here I think demonstrate that. Is this girl just observing the moment, the wonder and awe of life as she holds this flower. And children do that. We've seen that. If you've been a parent, you see your children, they just have these eyes wide open and they absorb, they consume that moment for every ounce it has. Or the next picture, a boy running through a sprinkler and this this, this sort of laughter, squealing with laughter as he enjoys the water. 
And children teach us that. And I think that's one of the reasons why Jesus says children are uh, a symbol of faith and greatness because they are fully present. They're fully present. And I would say we are not. We're so consumed with things from the past, aren't we? We're so consumed about tomorrow and next week. And you might be sitting here right now already thinking about uh, tomorrow at work or tomorrow at home or finances. That you're here, but you're really not here. You know, we have those moments, don't we? We might be at some kind of birthday party or a celebration and, and we're standing there, but we're really not there. Our mind is on some project. It's on work. It's on a relationship. It's on fill in the blank. And then someone will be talking to us and we're kind of nodding our head and then they ask us a question. We're dead. We're caught in the spotlight. So we have to have them repeat the question, Right? Or we try to answer it, and we're way off, and they find that out, and they have to repeat the question. But it's easy for us not to be fully present in this world that we live in. And yet children, are, they demonstrate that, to be fully present. And I'm not saying to be fully present does not mean, does not, mean uh, not uh, thinking about the past. We ought to think about the past. The past provides valuable lessons for us for life. Of course we should think about the past and improve our lives, write a better story for our lives. And also we should think about the future. We should be concerned about the future in a good way to prepare and plan for what's ahead. I'm not saying ignore those things. But when we have these moments, we have these moments like your child's graduation perhaps from elementary school into junior high or their graduation from high school or their prom, or their wedding. We have these moments. And if we're not fully present, if we're there, but not really there, you don't get a second chance. That moment is gone. You only have one chance. And I think that's why David is is called, one of the reasons why he's called a man after God's own heart, which is very interesting because David was a man who made plenty of mistakes and did uh, a lot of things uh, that were atrocious. Yet, he, did some, he lived a life, I think, that God was very pleased with. If you have a Bible, you can turn to 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 41. We're going to look at this example because David demonstrates this in a couple of ways. He demonstrates this, first of all, in 1 Samuel 20, and the context is where he is going to say goodbye to his friend Jonathan. They've been the best of friends. And Jonathan is the son of King Saul. David, uh, earlier, is anointed to be the next king, but he, he can't be king yet because Saul is the king. And Saul is jealous and envious of David and, and wants to kill him. And David's on the run. But yet Jonathan is his, is his ally and supports and advocates for David in a lot of ways. But this is their final meeting. This is the final time they're going to see each other. This is, this is a moment that they're not going to have again. And, and the writer writes this in 1 Samuel 20, verse 41. David came out from where he had been hiding in the stone pile. Then David bowed three times to Jonathan with his face to the ground. Both of them were in tears as they embraced each other and said goodbye, especially David. Or in some translations it said, David cried more. Now why, why would the writer include that clause? David's in tune with his emotions. Why would he say that? I think he says it because David understands that this is a final moment. And I am going to give myself to what is happening right in front of me. 
even though Saul is chasing me, even though I'm not sure if I'm going to live tomorrow, this is my goodbye to my best friend. And David weeps as he's going to miss his best friend Jonathan. Moving ahead, 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 14 through 15. We see David, now he's the king. They're bringing the Ark of the Covenant, which has been gone from Jerusalem for a long time. They bring the Ark in, and it's a time of celebration. And we, we, we see as it's written right here, And David danced before the Lord with all his might. It was a great verse for the movie Footloose. We're in a priestly garment. So David and all the people of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts of joy and the blowing of ram's horn. So David's out there dancing. The king, the royalty, is out there dancing. I mean, can you imagine uh, British royalty doing something like that? You'd be like, what's going on? But David was, because it's a time of celebration. And they're only going to have this moment once for the return of the ark of the covenant, which was so important to the Israelites. He knew that this was a time of celebration, Forget about the past. Forget about the future. I mean, be fully present for what's here right now. And he dances. And then his wife, Michael, sort of chastises him and says, you're, you're embarrassing yourself. You're a king. You're not supposed to be doing that. And he says this in verse 22. Yes, I'm willing to look even more foolish than this, even to be humiliated in my own eyes. But those servant girls you mentioned will indeed think I am distinguished. He's fully present for that moment of the Ark of the Covenant coming back. And he says, I don't care if I embarrass myself. So what can you do? What spiritual practices do you need to have in your life to slow down, to be fully present? To let God be God. And to be ready when those moments come. And sometimes they're spontaneous. And for you and I to be fully present. I also think that Jesus uses children as an example of and a symbol of faith and greatness because they ask questions openly and honestly. Right, parents? When they're little children, it's so cute what they ask. I got a list. Uh, I went on the internet just to find, like, what's the top, top list of questions that parents receive from their, from their kids when they're little? Here's one question they ask their parents. Why do I have two eyes when I can see only one thing? Dad, why are you buying beer? You know how much candy we could have bought with that? <laughs> Mom, how small are people on the radio? Another one. Dad, when are you, you and Mom going to die? And the dad said, hopefully not for a long time. But once you do, I like to have new parents. <laughs> this is so open and honest, and it's so refreshing, isn't it, when we come across this when our children are little? And yet, we are so afraid at times to ask questions. I think of God or coworkers. I have people who come to me in numerous counseling sessions. They'll, they'll share with me grief in their life and the burdens that are weighing them down and the anger they have, the frustration they have, the, the confusion they have with God. And I always tell them, go to God and share openly and honestly. He would love that. He is not going to strike you with a lightning bolt. If you look in the Bible, people like Moses and Jeremiah, uh, very open, Abraham, op very open with their questions, very honest, because they knew that God loved them. And they had this relationship with God to be open uh, with our questions and, and to be candid and to hold nothing back. But yet, we see with the disciples, let's jump ahead here to Matthew 20, verses 20 through 22, James and John don't do that. 
They're, they're afraid. They're afraid to ask the question. So what do they do? They get mom. <laughs> right? Whenever you're afraid to ask a question, even if you're an adult, mom, mom, you got to help me. Verse 20, then the mother of James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus with her son. She knelt respectfully to ask a favor. What is your request, he asked. She replied, in your kingdom, please let my two sons sit in places of honor next to you, one on your right, one on the left. So James and John are afraid to ask that question of Jesus. And, and, and sometimes we do that same thing. We, we hold back. We hold back from asking a question perhaps in a Bible study, maybe for our students as a high school class or a college class. You're afraid to ask a question because you think it's going to be a dumb question and you might come across, you're worried about um, how you might look. And that's what I, I really love about, about kids and I think that's why Jesus points to them as an example of greatness and faith is that they're, they're not really worried about the reputation. They're not really worried about how others are going to look at them. You know, they, again, they don't have the cognitive ability to do that. So they just ask questions so, so uh, innocently. And I think in the same way, we need to ask questions more and more and not be afraid of how might we come across or how might we appear. That we need to move away from self-management or image management where we want to appear a certain way so we hold back on asking questions either of God or people around us. In seminary, I had a professor of New Testament, and he was brilliant. He was from Oxford. He had two PhDs, and he was kind of an intimidating figure, six foot four, um, and so highly respected. And we had him for 15 weeks, three classes each week, 45 classes. And the first class, uh, he, he opened that class as he did with the subsequent classes by asking us, to uh, actually for a volunteer, to share the, um, what we thought the meaning of the passage was that was assigned, and then also to ask a question for the class to discuss based on that passage. And this one brave student raised her hand, and she gave a very articulate response to that and shared the meaning of the passage, and then provided a question for us as a class to discuss. And the professor responded by saying this, and this is verbatim, they say there are no dumb questions, but you just proved that wrong. He then explained how that student had failed miserably in asking more relevant questions, or more relevant question. We had 45 classes, like I said, that semester with that professor. He would open every single class with that. 44 other classes, no one ever raised their hand again. And, and sometimes we have experiences like that where we feel embarrassed or humiliated and we hold back because we're afraid. But children show us open, honest questions, questions that ought to be asked. Next is that I think Jesus uh, points to the children as the little ones as an example of faith and greatness because they depend fully upon their parents. They rely fully upon their parents. They need their parents' help for what is good, right? Uh, they're, they're to rely on their parents for, uh, for food, for shelter, for safety. Fully reliant on their parents. And I think that's one of the reasons why Jesus points to children, because children depend fully upon their parent or parents. It reminds me of Psalm 23. And I think in many ways the relationship between a, children, a little child and a parent or parents is similar to a shepherd and sheep. And this is something that I share when I do funerals 
Psalm 23 is one of my favorite psalms, if not the favorite of mine. And it says this, The Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. He lets me rest in green, uh, green meadows. He leads me beside peaceful streams. Now, that sounds very idyllic, but Philip Keller, who was a shepherd for eight years in New Zealand and then became a pastor, he actually wrote a really good book, by the way, on the 23rd Psalm. And I share this in my funeral uh, comments in my homily. And, and Keller talks about for sheep to, to rest, uh, to rest and actually enjoy uh, the, where they are and to go to sleep at night, there's four things that have to happen. Number one, they have to know they're safe. They have to know that there's not predators that are going to come after them. Number two, they can't be bothered by the other sheep. If there's like some friction between a sheep and another sheep, they're not going to sleep. Third is that um, they also need to um, be well-fed. If they're hungry, they're not going to go to sleep. And then lastly is, is for, for sheep to, to go to sleep and to feel, um, you know, that it's going to be, uh, they're, they're going to be okay, is to know that the shepherd is nearby. And I think in many ways that, that, that relationship between a child and a parent is much like that. They're fully reliant on uh, the parent. Let's take a look at John, John chapter 20, where it talks, talks about, excuse me, John chapter 10, where it talks about when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. John chapter 10, verses 11 through 15. He says this, I am the good shepherd. By the way, there's eight of these I am's. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd sacrifices his life for his sheep. A hired hand will run when he sees a wolf coming. He will abandon the sheep because they don't belong to him. And he isn't their shepherd. And so the wolf attacks them and he scatters the flock. Skipping on verse 14. I am the good shepherd. I know my own sheep and they know me. Just as my father knows me and I know the father. So I sacrifice my life for the sheep. And Jesus is our good shepherd. And for us to recapture that reliance, that dependence upon God. And right now, you might be holding on to something so tight, so tight, that your shoulders are just, they hurt, you have a headache, you can't sleep at night. Maybe it's time to let go. And like a child, be fully dependent upon your Heavenly Father because He cares for you. And He knows what you need. And maybe like a child where you actually, instead of being self-sufficient, you actually believe and recapture that God knows what's good for you. He knows what's better for you. There's an there was an advertisement that came out from a fitness club. And it was entitled, called, it was entitled The Year of You. It said this, 2019 is here and you're either going to own the year or the year is going to own, own you. It's 100% your choice. It's in your hands. That's the first thing. Simply by taking all the responsibility and putting it on your shoulders, you become empowered. Next, you take that feeling of empowerment, of invincibility, that feeling that you can run through a wall, you can take action, you take action like you've ever taken action before, you become prolific, you become consistent, you let no obstacles stand in your way, no matter what, no more pity parties, no more whining about anything. You are in control. The year of you. How many of us actually live that way? And for us in 2019 is to say, it's the year of my Heavenly Father. That as a child, I am going to rely dependently on Him, fully dependent on Him. It's been interesting. We've been in a search process for our uh, 
next worship director, and our band and our search team have spent hours. Uh, we've had candidates come in here and do like a mock rehearsal, which is usually about an hour and a half, two hours long, and we spent a lot of time together. And um, yesterday, after one candidate was done, our search team uh, talked, and it was just so refreshing for me to hear as we thought we talked about the pros and cons of the candidates that um, one of the search team members just reminded us, you know, God's in control. God knows who's, who's going to be our next worship director. And we are going to depend upon him, that he is going to guide us. How about you? What do you need to let go? How can you, in a sense, have this childlike faith? By the way, childlike faith is not childish. Childlike faith is where you depend fully upon your Heavenly Father. Let's close with the Lord's Prayer, saying this together. Our Father, hallowed be thy name. It will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.